May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Tonight we mark the seventh and final Sunday in Eastertide. Doesn't Easter Day seem like it was a long time ago now? Following the timeline that Luke sets out in the book of Acts, this day lands us in a kind of an in-between zone. According to Luke's timeline, in his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his followers over the course of 40 days, speaking to them of the kingdom of God. At the end of the 40 days, he ascended from them, though not before telling them to remain in Jerusalem and to wait for what he called the promise of the Father for the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. This same order of things is followed in the liturgical calendar. So this past Thursday was actually Ascension Day. Next Sunday is Pentecost. And today is part of the 10-day bridge between the two. But I wonder, had you even noticed on Thursday that it was Ascension Day? Probably not. You see, while the Feast of the Ascension is designated as one of the major feast days or holy days in the calendar, it doesn't have near the profile of Christmas or Easter or even of Pentecost. And those churches that did mark it probably gathered only smallish congregations. And I'm pretty sure that the day was all but an invisible outside of those church walls. Now that's partly because Ascension Day always falls on a Thursday, not typically a day for going to church in a highly pluralistic and secularized society. But I suspect that the relatively low profile of Ascension Day might also have to do with a bit of modern uneasiness with the story that's told that day, which says that the resurrected Jesus was, quote, lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now that works very well in a, in a pre-modern world with, with a pre-modern view of how the universe is structured, a flat and stable earth around which the planets and the stars were thought to move, and above which, well above which, was heaven. But now that we know that the earth is a spinning globe, which is itself spinning around the sun, which is part of a massive universe, what's up? And so the text becomes a little funny. With the vastness of space, what do we do with the image of Jesus ascending? It's a question that's actually been raised by modern biblical critics for at least 150 years. Leading the controversial writer John Spong to bluntly state, My knowledge of the size of this universe reduces that concept to nonsense. And so it kind of gets avoided. Yet, 
Yet, I would want to state that a belief in Christ's ascension is not actually about a, a set of directions for how he got to heaven. See, the Gospels are united in their sense that in his resurrected life, Jesus was so utterly and vibrantly alive that the world as we know it could barely contain him. Things like walls and doors pose no barrier. He's with them, and suddenly he's not. He speaks to them, but they don't recognize him, at least not until he lets them recognize him. Yet he's not a ghost, and he's not a mere spirit either. His hands and his feet bear the scars of his wounds, and he shares food with them. Not only does he share food with them, but in, in that one particularly poignant scene at the end of the gospel according to John, he actually grills breakfast for them on the beach. But Jesus will not remain with them, or at least not in that immediately physical form. He must go from them to the Father. And how else, given their understanding of the way the universe, the cosmos, was structured, how else could they possibly experience that or understand that other than in terms of being lifted up as a going up from them, an ascension? He will go from them to the Father, yet they will not be left without the presence of God. For the Spirit of God will come upon them in a new way. The story from Acts that we tell today is located in the space between those two experiences, that of, of his going from them and, and of waiting upon the next. It's located in what Karl Barth called a significant pause, in which the primary task of the disciples was to wait, to wait with expectant anticipation for the promised gift that they don't even begin to understand yet. Not that they just sit on their hands waiting. We're told that they returned to the upper room in Jerusalem where they were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. And not just the remaining 11 disciples either, but also, the text tells us, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. Now, the mention of the women being present in this waiting period is significant. It's a signal that this community is about to carry forward Jesus' insistence that room be made in that community for those whom the wider society is unwilling to grant status. So the women are very much there and a part of it. And the presence of the brothers of Jesus suggests that whatever reservations they might have had at an earlier point of his ministry, and I don't know if you remember, in, in close to the beginning of the Gospel according to Mark, his brothers come and try to take him home because they think he's lost his mind. Well, whatever reservations they had earlier, they've now been set aside. They're now firmly a part of this movement. But it wasn't simply an extended prayer meeting either. For as today's lesson opens, 
we heard that Peter stood up to address the believers. And it's noted that the believers numbered about 120 persons. So we're again reminded that we're dealing with more than just a little group of the designated apostles. This is a growing movement already. And of course it's Peter who stands up to raise a practical matter. I mean, Peter is always the one who wants or or needs to do something. He's always kind of the blue-collar fisherman. He's 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 a guy that works hands on. And there's a task to be done. So so get up and we need to get on with it. In this case, Peter's concern is is that there's a gap in the 12 disciples left by Judas. And the gap needs to be filled. The number 12 is important as it symbolized the 12 tribes of ancient Israel the prophets had proclaimed that the tribes were to be regathered and reconstituted as one people. With Judas gone, a twelfth needs to be added to kind of fill that symbolism. Incidentally, the, the lectionary gets a little bit squeamish here. If you look at the song sheet, you'll notice that it says that we read, you know, Acts 1, 15 to 17, and then there's a gap. And then 21 to 26, um, the handful of verses that the lectionary omits indicate just how desolate Judas had become. And that after buying a plot of land with the blood money, he died, falling headlong, bursting open in the middle with his bowels gushing out. Not that we need to dwell on that image. (laughs) Though it is interesting that the lectionary gets squeamish and leaves it out. I think it's even more interesting, though, that Peter's concern that the twelfth spot be filled really coincides with the same moment that Judas dies. You wonder, was Peter holding open even the faintest hope that Judas might yet return to their company and repent the way Peter himself had? Well, with his tongue placed firmly in his cheek, N.T. Wright notes that their method for selecting a replacement for Judas if applied today, would simplify clergy appointments to no end. They cast lots to fill the twelfth spot, which is pretty much the same thing as rolling dice or drawing straws. Or at least that was part of their process. For those in the running needed to be ones who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. They needed to be drawn from those who were part of this company, in other words, part of the Jesus movement from very early on. They needed to be witnesses to it all, a part of the fabric of community life. And apparently, there were two good, solid candidates. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. 
Then it says in Acts, then they prayed, which in some real sense means that they understood the casting of lots to be simply a way of letting go of their own control of the process, of entrusting it to something other than themselves, to trust that in the casting of lots, the will of God might be known. They said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. Hands off. And the lot fell on Matthias. Which really makes one wonder how that left Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, feeling as he watched the other guy have the lot cast in his favor. On the other hand, winning the lots doesn't seem to have been much of a prize, really. Matthias is never again mentioned in the New Testament. And the one thing we're pretty clear on is that one after another, the disciples are all killed for their beliefs. And notably, there seems no need to replace each of them after they've died, no pressure to continue to structure the leadership of the early church around the symbolism of the twelve tribes. It seems to have been something that was significant for them only during that significant pause between the Ascension and Pentecost. Now, I don't mean to be flippant here, as if to suggest that this whole business of filling the twelfth space was rooted in little more than Peter's need to do something. I do think it was a powerfully symbolic act for the moment. But with the gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, a whole new way, a whole new world, in fact, opens up before them. And soon enough, it won't be the reconstitution of the twelve tribes of Israel that will catch their attention, but the ingathering of all people, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And that will be championed by another one called Apostle Paul. Paul, who calls himself someone untimely born, unfit to be called an apostle, and an apostle only by the grace of God. But that's to get well ahead of ourselves. Maybe for this week, what we most need to consider is the posture of Peter and the others as they wait with expectancy in that significant pause open to where the Spirit of God will take them next, and acting faithfully according to their understanding of what it is they need to do in the meantime. Never mind that we don't again hear of Matthias or of justice. They're part of that movement, that movement that will roll forward according to God's good purposes. And the world has not been the same since. That's the story as it continues to unfold next Sunday in the Feast of Pentecost. This week, 
Let's pay attention to that waiting upon, that being with and listening, and see where it draws us. Amen.